Welcome to Garden DC, the podcast about everything gardening in the Washington DC and Mid-Atlantic region. I'm your host, Kathy Gents. I'm the editor of Washington Gardener Magazine, and we're aimed at gardening enthusiasts, people who grow everything from edibles to ornamentals, natives to exotics. If it grows in our area, that's what we talk about. Welcome to episode 150 of the Garden DC podcast. In this episode, we talk with Amanda McLean and Claudio Vasquez, owners of Izel Plants, about sourcing native plants. Izel Native Plants developed a unique model in horticulture by consolidating the inventories of several native plant nurseries in a user friendly website. The plant profile is on Baptisia, and we share what's going on in the garden as well as some upcoming local gardening events in the What's New segment. We close out with homestead education podcaster and author Angela Ferraro Fanning, who shares the last word on food forest gardening. This episode, we're joined by Amanda McLean and Claudio Vasquez, co-owners of Izel Plants. And we're going to discuss how to find plants that are truly native to our region and some of those questions about native plant sourcing. Um, welcome, Amanda and Claudio. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us, Kathy. Great to have you both. So a few years ago, I had you talk to the Silver Spring Garden Club about sourcing native plants, and that was such a popular discussion. And I don't think they wanted to let you leave the room that night. (laughs) (laughs) I thought this would be a great topic for the podcast. And so we'll dive into everything about sourcing of native plants and the ethics behind it, what's a genotype, that sort of thing. But before we dive into all of that. Let's start off with Amanda and let's talk about your background, how you got into plants, and then we'll talk about Claudio and then how Izel Plants started itself. So we'll start with you, Amanda, and say, were you born with a green thumb and chlorophyll in your veins? <laughs> oh, my my mother had a lot of interest and in, she, she had like a kitchen garden and we had house plants all over the place. But um, you know, career-wise, uh, there was not a plant in sight. You know, she has a science background. Um, so my interest in native plants was really my own. Um, and a lot of that came from uh, individually, Claudio and I both bought houses around the same time. And, and we were became really interested in native plants and found that it was hard to find the kinds of information that we were interested in. Um, and it felt like at the time you could, you could search for a TV by inputting, say, into a website, certain requirements, maybe the size, you know, 50 inch and, um, brand, that kind of thing and have it spit out options. And it was really sort of a frustration that even though that information was available in books, um, it, it wasn't, um, easily available online. Okay. Sorry. I also wanted to give Claudio a moment. In terms of uh, background. Well, I, I actually, um, when I was kid, when I was a kid, when I was very little, I actually spent uh, a fair amount of time in uh, with plants. I was, um, I grew up in a rural, very rural area outside of uh, Geneva, Switzerland in the French countryside. And the closest neighbor 
to where uh, I was growing up was about a mile away. And this is my early years of elementary school. And that was the closest house, not necessarily a house with kids. So I spent a lot of uh, my earliest years um, on a farm. And uh, when I didn't have school, I would wander the woods uh, and the fields. And I had uh, these uh, little areas by streams that I would secretly go and like move little plants around and build like these, uh, these mini landscapes. Uh, I, I love to use mosses and, and uh, plants that uh, now I recognize as being uh, horsetails because uh, it reminded me of miniature little prehistoric, uh, prehistoric scenes. And, and, and then as a teenager, I tended uh, our garden, our vegetable garden, and then moved to, to the US and pretty much had a urban life until, like Amanda said, you know, we also bought our, our homes. And that was really my first opportunity, other than uh, volunteer, volunteering um, unsolicited um, advice to anybody whom I knew who had a garden or who had plants. And finally got to play around with my own plants. And as Amanda was saying, you know, we, and we've known each other going way back, we kind of developed an interest in native plants. And as well as a frustration, as Amanda began to say about uh, the availability of information, let alone plants uh, at the time, which was kind of the spark uh, that got us involved in, um, in this project. Hmm. And so both of you have a background in photography and graphics, is that correct? Yes, that's correct. Yes. Um, and that's actually um, uh, how we met and how we started working together was as uh, professional photographers and which was also a part of uh, the reason why we started getting involved with, uh, with this because we in essence we work closely in advertising and which is an extension of marketing and we really saw that uh, there was there was a gap in um, uh, in what we thought we could provide and we felt that if we had the need for this, with our marketing skills, we might be able to help others um, solve the problems that we were having. Hmm. And so before we dive into how you started your company and a little bit more about that, let's talk about your home gardens as they are right now, um, especially for those listeners who are not in the greater Washington, D.C. area. Maybe you can describe where you garden and what you're gardening. I'll start with Amanda. How's that? <laughs> well, I actually live downtown, so I have a relatively small uh, front yard and backyard garden. And otherwise, I am still in charge of the garden for my parents' house in Reston, which is much more suburban. And you, Claudio? I live um, also. I live within uh, the DC city limits, but I'm in a much more residential neighborhood and. Uh, even though I am in the city, uh, it's pretty much a suburban type uh, neighborhood. And for being in Washington, D.C., I have a pretty large yard. It's about a quarter acre. And um, it's a mishmash of plants. Uh, somebody, I heard somebody term, uh, coined the term horticulturist, as in a hoarder. And, <laughs> and that's a little bit of what I am. And because of our access to, uh, to native plants, uh, with uh, the growers that we work, uh, sometimes, uh, we've been asked to trial plants. I've had some of the growers, uh, who have asked me to, uh, actually keep 
some of their plants growing because I could isolate them in terms of uh, or avoid cross-pollination with other crops that they had so that I could collect the seeds and send them back. So really, uh, it's been very helpful to learn about the plants that we're that we're dealing with. Uh, but uh, but I kind of feel embarrassed whenever um, I have a somebody who actually knows how to work with plants or knows how to design with plants. I'm always embarrassed uh, when I bring them over uh, to visit and show them my garden because uh, I think it's a mess, but, um, but I've learned a lot about plants by, by doing that. Mm-hmm. And so you're both zone seven, correct? Correct. Yeah. Although we're, it, it's funny. Uh, we are about 10 days apart, you know, we're seven miles apart. <laughs> <laughs> 10 days apart as far as, you know, early spring bloomers. So it's, it's always sort of fun to, to compare. Mm-hmm. I find that too, that Washington DC is kind of a heat Island. And sometimes there will be blooms there that aren't it say in Montgomery County yet or out in Loudoun County. Yeah. Hmm. So let's turn now Amanda to how Izell got started and why and what need it fills. Well, I sort of touched on that a little bit before that um, we saw gardening kind of as sometimes as problem solving. Um, You know, you you know that you have deep shade and you know that you want a ground cover and maybe you know what color you wish it would bloom. And it just feels like even though that information was available in books, um, being able to sort of input those those wishes, those filter options and have it spit out things, not only that were native to your area, but were actually available, um, really seemed like a a need that we saw. And uh, we thought, well, we could build that, which is sort of the famous last words. You think, how hard could that be? And and then you get a few years down the line, you're like, wow, I'm glad I didn't realize what I was starting. so, but anyway, it, it has been very successful. It was just a, a little bit of a, a, a learning experience, as they say, mm-hmm. in the beginning. And so your name, I-Z-E-L, how did that come apart? Uh, you know, actually, that was an inspiration that came from Claudio, and I'll, I'll let him explain it. That, yeah, it's funny. It goes back to a tradition that uh, my great uncle in Mexico, because I'm uh, part uh, Mexican my, on my father's side of Mexican, my mother's side, uh, I'm American. I grew up in Europe. Um, uh, I like to joke uh, the elevator spe- uh, pitch is that I'm a French speaking Mexican Jew. Um, and so this uncle was had a encyclopedic uh, knowledge of uh, pre-Columbian Mexican history and actually post-Columbian also. And he started a tradition in our family of giving uh, his children uh, Nahuatl names, so uh, which is uh, the Aztec language. And um, and we would name, uh, somehow I avoided that, uh, that tradition and I was named Claudia rather than all my cousins have names that are virtually impossible to pronounce, let alone spell. Uh, but so there was this tradition, and I thought that would be very appropriate for native plants, having a reference to arguably the oldest 
language, written language native to North America. So I kind of broadened it. And so Aizawa is Nawato, which means unique. I was looking for um, an ind indigenous word for native, but uh, it doesn't exist in any native language because why would you? You know, the, you know, you are native. You don't define yourself at that. You're just you. So the so I found Aizel, which means unique, and our logo is inspired also by Nahuatl, um, uh, and the pictogram, which means flowers, uh, Xochitl, uh, the word is Xochitl. So the combination of our logo and Aizel means unique flowers. And we thought it might be more memorable than a lot of business names within the trade that are valley this or sun this or prairie that and combinations of those words uh, which make makes them difficult to remember let alone do um, do a google search sometimes uh, you have uh, you have uh, business names uh, that are so specific to uh, aspects of of a business that when you when you do a search for them uh, you get all these results and you don't necessarily rank very high on those results uh, with your own name because it is shared by by a lot of uh, by a lot of other um, entities or businesses. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean there must be a thousand native plant nurseries with meadow or prairie in the name somewhere. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and so, speaking of which, um, how? is the native plant movement at this moment in time? Do you think, Claudio, is it trend that's leveling off? Is it slowing down or is it still exponentially growing? I think we've unleashed a monster. <laughs> uh, uh, no, joking, it's not a monster. We think it's great. Uh, no, it's it's not tapering off by by any measure. I think um, I think it's very exciting. It's exciting to, to uh, a lot of people. Uh, a lot of uh, new demographics are getting involved. And I think in, in part is that there's a greater uh, awareness of environmental concerns and working with native plants fits very well into that. And so there might be some groups of people or certain age groups that traditionally have thought of gardening as uh, something for uh, retired people or something for their parents to be doing, you know, a very sedentary and um, um, pastime that's really more about leisure than anything else. And uh, I think there are generations that are coming up that see plants more as part of our environment, part of our ecosystems, part uh, of our world. And these are also generations that are coming up with uh, an awareness, awareness of the impacts that we as humans are having on our environment. And, uh, and some of them are kind of dismayed uh, and I can't argue um, that, you know, there's certain, uh, certainly reasons for us to be alarmed about what we're doing to our environment. And so, um, so people are seeing gardening now as a little bit as, um, how would you say, uh, not as a mission, but as a way to contribute, even if it's a small way to, uh, to care for their in environment or you know, to try to affect change. Uh, you know, how much change we're affecting by this or people are affected with native plants, that is probably a, a topic for an entire podcast or, or more. <laughs> 
<laughs> for sure. Um, so once a homeowner or gardener or newbie gardener starts to discover the world of native plants, I think the first thing that comes up is defining what a native is. Um, so how do you define that, Claudio? That is, uh, thank you for that question. It's actually a great question because it seems very obvious and it is anything but. Um, there, there are a lot of definitions of what's native. And I would say um, it has to do with a level of granularity. Uh, I've heard countless times people arguing for the use of what we call non-native plants saying, why are you making a distinction? Because every plant is native to somewhere, which is correct. Uh, but that is very, that's looking at things from a very broad lens. So to define uh, nativity, uh, you have to take into consideration not only location, but also time frames. Uh, because I've also heard the argument that once upon a time, Pangea, you know, so plants are native to everywhere. Every, you know, every plant is native to everywhere. So the, the, the classic interpretation uh, or the most common uh, interpretation is uh, plants that existed before European settlers started bringing plants, uh, plants in. That is, it is pretty correct, even though uh, one could very well argue that indigenous people did a lot of um, uh, landscape management mm -hmm. and, um, and did affect the distribution of plants and did move plants, uh, plants around a lot. But again, we can dig very deep. That can be a podcast in, in and of itself. So we're talking about uh, plants that existed in an environment pre-settlement. So then we, we get to the geographic factor and the levels of granularity. Uh, we tend to think of native plants as native to a particular state. Uh, people, when they first start looking for plants, they're like, if they're in Montgomery County, they'll look for plants that are native to, uh, to the state of Maryland, uh, which is a good start. Uh, it does, it, it can lead to some, um, some errors. Uh, Maryland is a broad state. Uh, that has very different environments. If you're on the Western Panhandle, it's a mountainous area. Uh, if you're on the Eastern Shore, uh, it is a completely different environment and has different plants. So, um, so really, um, ecosystems is something to pay attention to more than geopolitical boundaries. And you have ecosystems that extend uh, great distances. So you have... Uh, and I don't have the numbers in front of me, but uh, I think uh, maybe uh, ecoregion 66 or 65, one of those in the 60s that will go from southern New York through Pennsylvania all the way down to North Carolina along, you know, uh, or the, um, uh, the Piedmont, for example. That's, that is a very long ecoregion that flanks the eastern um, Appalachians. And so, so you might... Um, have plants that um, are native to that ecoregion. Where am I going with this? Um, that you might be able to find in other states, let's put it this way. Um, and, um, and you might, if you are in the Piedmont, 
if you find a plant native to Maryland, but it's native to the eastern shore of Maryland, so you know, in sandy, very well drained, you know, hotter, hotter environments, it might not be appropriate everywhere in in Maryland. And then people, and then you can get even more uh, granular than that. Um, how much attention you should pay to what is actually native and and how granular to get. That is something that uh, we can certainly uh, uh, discuss. It really depends what you're trying to do with your plants. Mm -hmm. So I would say most gardening consumers, you know, they might go to a garden center and see the label native plant. And as long as it's North American native, I think they're satisfied. Uh, and then there are those who are really, really interested in it has to be a local ecotype. It has to be a, a native straight species. Um, which brings us to the question about cultivars, or as they're known, nativar, a native cultivar, and um, whether you carry those or what your um, thoughts are on those, Claudio. So, yes. Um, so cultivars. Okay, let's start with the with cultivars and and defining cultivars. There, there's probably as many misconceptions around cultivars as there are around what constitutes a native, you know, a native plant. And you know, so one example I like to use is um, uh, a very popular, so all of a sudden I'm not talking about cultivars, sorry, I'm going back to, to the first question about native plants. Uh, Amsonia hubristii, which is the Eastern, no, it's not the Eastern blue star, it is the, Threadleaf blue star, uh, which has only been found, the native populations of that species are limited to uh, between a handful and a dozen counties, uh, overlapping in um, Arkansas, I believe, and uh, Oklahoma. Yet, it is an absolutely gorgeous native plant that even if you don't know it's native, you've seen it because it is all over the place. Um, it is um, uh, one of the plants that's used heavily uh, around the colonnade at uh, the U.S. National Arboretum, uh, which turns fiery golden colors uh, in the fall. Okay. Uh, I know I walked yesterday, I was walking in the neighborhood uh, with uh, my wife, Charlotte, and it is one of just about the only native plants that we tend to see um, in our neighborhood. So that is a native plant. And Claudio, I was going to interrupt you there just to say that is the exact plant and description of our Garden DC podcast logo that you just described. Yeah. <laughs> that is <laughs> which, correct. Which Absolutely. is the, the yeah. columns at the U.S. National Arboretum when the Amsonia is in a blaze of orangey yellow and then the purple asters are in bloom threaded throughout there. So if you take a, a look at our podcast art, you'll see that combination from the U.S. National Arboretum. Exactly. So, depending on what definition you're using, um, that plant can be considered native or not. Uh, I think one of the important things, uh, one of the one of the concerns about uh, being native uh, is like uh, versus non-native is uh, the the negative impact that exotic plants can have on the environment, and we could consider. Amsonia hubristii to be exotic to the area where we are uh, around Montgomery County in the mid-Atlantic or actually anywhere outside of uh, the small area in Oklahoma. But 
it's pretty much understood that the 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 higher the further away and the more different the the ecosystem is that you bring a plant in from the higher the risk of something going going wrong so that's also something to keep in mind and that is one of the reasons that a lot of the invasive species that we have um, here in uh, North America uh, have come from similar areas or areas of similar climate um, in Asia. Uh, and so, uh, so the adaptations to the environment are different. Uh, the competition within the environment are different. And, uh, and all of a sudden, you know, we bring in plants and they, and they just kind of get out of control because uh, our ecosystems have, have no way to, to control them or these plants have, have no competition. So um, Amsonia hubristii, pretty much a safe plant uh, to have. You're, you're not going to create any environmental damage with uh, moving that one around. Now, in terms of, uh, in terms of cultivars, um, there's a fair amount of misunderstanding about them. Uh, in the broadest definition, a cultivar is any plant that has been put into cultivation. Um, it's more commonly understood that it is a species that has been selected for particular traits. And I'm being careful to use the word selected because a lot of them are just that. They're mm -hmm. selections of naturally occurring variances. Uh, and there's some very good examples of that. And of course, not all cultivars meet that definition. But for example, Phloxgena, uh, which is um, um, a beautiful garden phlox, uh, and it happens to be uh, one of the most powdery mildew resistant of the varieties of garden phlox that, uh, that are available. And that was um, a naturally occurring variation that was spotted, uh, I believe, in, um, uh, in Tennessee. Um, and it was selected from that population, and several plants were selected and put into cultivation and trialed, and they maintained that mildew resistance. So it's actually the result of a natural, naturally occurring variation. These were open pollinated plants. They're not Franken plants. Uh, and they have as much genetic variety as you can expect from any selection of a wild species because um, a straight species without a cultivar name that is put into general production has been actually sourced the same way. You take some plants or some seed of a, uh, of a population that you have found and you put it into cultivation and you propagate from, from it. So, uh, but on, on a straight species, you're doing so not necessarily selecting from an, for an extraordinary characteristic. Some of the cultivars are selected the same way, but because they have had a naturally occurring um, variance. Then, of course, there's a lot of breeding going on, and some cultivars have been bred to enhance certain characteristics. Um, some species are also very promiscuous, or uh, I would see some genera are very uh, promiscuous. Uh, for example, uh, echinaceas. There are a lot of species of echinaceas. They have different floral characteristics. They have different size characteristics, and they cross-pollinate very, very readily. And um, so um, 
out of that, you get both hybrids, which would be a cross between two different species within, uh, in this case of Echinacea, within the same genus. Uh, but you can also have variations within a genus that are enhanced uh, to, uh, to, to produce plants um, uh, that are either shorter or have different bloom colors. And those are selected and eventually um, they're produced asexually. Uh, so you, uh, they're, they're not open pollinated anymore because they are so, um, so liable to have variations. If you want to preserve a trait, then they're produced asexually to maintain those traits, which is why people, uh, in this case, will cite uh, lack of genetic uh, diversity uh, within, uh, with, within those plant profiles, um, which, is, um, which is absolutely, which is absolutely uh, correct. Um, and why is genetic diversity important, Claudio? It depends on, it depends on who you ask and what your goals are. So if you're dealing with um, environmental restoration or conservation, uh, genetic diversity is absolutely very important. Uh, you want to have species that, if let loose in the wild, have enough um, genetic diversity to be able to, to survive amid naturally occurring environmental fluctuations. So the more diverse your genetic material is, if uh, you go through a few years of drought, it increases your chances that uh, some of the, um, the, the plants from that population will have adaptations or will have um, variations that will allow those to adapt and survive, whereas some of the other plants uh, within the same population will die, will die out. Same thing if uh, things get wet or things get dry, um, it's very important to have that. Um, if you're a home gardener, then genetic diversity becomes far less critical, uh, if at all. Um, you know, I can think of a thousand and one ways to kill a plant uh, before um, genetic diversity, uh, diversity uh, can be um, uh, considered as one of the culprits. And trust me, I've tried and I've successfully killed thousands of plants. Uh, and it has nothing to do with, um, with um, uh, the source of the, the plants or their genetic uh, background. I wanted to jump in for a minute to say that, you know, Claudio did a great explanation around cultivars that are both selections versus those that have been bred. Mm -hmm. And uh, I wanted to point out that when we start to work with a grower, we extensively research all of their offerings. Um, and we don't sell all the different cultivars necessarily that are available to us from, from a given grower. We really, uh, we really look into that um, because we want to promote either the straight species or, or the selections. Hmm. And that does bring up Amanda, um, when you are sourcing and looking for native plants, what are you looking for specifically? Oh, we do a fair amount of vetting um, of our partner nurseries. Um, 
we're, we're really looking for growers that are primarily focused on natives. And it's really important that they be very confident in their plant ID because, you know, uh, we're the representative of the customer, uh, you know, and, and it's, it's better for us to do all of that hard work so that the customer can feel really confident um, because and I'm not sure how much, I, I don't think we really got into it. We actually source from a lot of different, different growers and we become like a one, one-stop shop. So it's incumbent on us to really have done that due diligence. So we're both talking about looking for uh, specialists in native plants, uh, confident in their plant ID, um, if they sell exotics, uh, you know, we just leave that portion to somebody else to sell. Uh, and the plants have to be grown without neonics. Uh, that's really important to our to our mission. Um, and lastly, the glowers have to be comfortable with packaging and shipping plants. Um, if they're somewhat new to it, we do, you know, kind of collaborate to to um, to work on that process because ultimately, <laughs> at the end of the day, the goal is to get great looking plants in the, in the hands of a person. So, um, so that shipping piece is also really important. And for our listeners who are, might not be familiar with the term neonics or neonicotinoid, um, let's define that a little bit for them. Uh, I'll actually let Claudio do that. Well, they're, they're basically a class of, uh, systemic pesticides and, uh, I'm not an expert on that either. And, and it is a, a complex subject. So, but basically, it is uh, the type of pesticide that everybody um, has been concerned about because uh, it's a pesticide that is absorbed by the plant it, uh, itself, which is the definition of systemic. And uh, it's been found that the, those pesticides persist throughout all tissues of the plant from the root, including the flowers and including the, the, the pollen. So if a plant has been treated with uh, neonics and you buy a plant because you're trying to attract pollinators, you're also going to be killing them because uh, the, uh, the, the pollen will have uh, some of mm -hmm. those pesticides um, uh, yeah. in, in the material. Yeah. And I was going to say that's one of the sources that people have um, pointed to for the honeybee decline in populations, especially in Europe, and it's been banned in, in some places. Um, so you'll see sometimes no neonics or some type of phrase like that um, displayed mm -hmm. at a garden center, or maybe if you're at a native plant sale, you know, somebody might say that at their booth or something like that. <laughs> it should be pointed out that the few times you see signs like, uh, uh, I can't remember, I've seen it in a box store, like, mm -hmm. I can't remember exactly how they phrase it, you know, unlikely to be eaten or, you know, won't be eaten by bugs or any, anything like that. You, you need to be really wary yeah. because, you know, what is it that, that makes them less likely to be grazed? Well, it's something like a neonic. Mm -hmm. And actually, I, I want to bring up that that's a very uh, interesting point, because when we're talking about the journey of native plants and the evolution and the interest of native plants and gardening. Some of the, the earliest arguments about or for the use of native plants were actually pretty much off the mark and some of them still persist. One of them was that native plants are more pest resistant. 
Um, and that is actually uh, really not true. Uh, if anything, uh, our native plants are, a lot of them are host plants for, uh, for a lot of herbivorous, um, herbivorous insects. And we want that. We want our plants to be eaten by, by insects because that means they are of ecological value and they are helping. So, so some of the earliest uh, mantras around native plants, you know, that they're pest resistant, very, very wrong. But that also ties into the whole neonics and the retail market. Uh, the reason that um, that growers have been using neonics uh, traditionally is because uh, uh, traditionally uh, uh, consumers go into a, a garden center and they want to see beautiful plants. They don't want to see a, a plant with leaves half eaten or flowers uh, half eaten. Uh, and And that's where uh, that's why uh, traditionally we've re- relied very heavily on, on pesticides to get um, to get plants to market and have them retail ready. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's something that you know, just like with our fruit at a grocery store, you know, unblemished fruit sells. Blemished fruit is not going to sell very well, and yeah. to have that unblemished fruit, you're going to have to do some type of chemical treatment. Yeah. Yes. And so with Izol plants, are you selling the actual started plants or plugs, or do you also sell seeds, or how do you um, recommend people start their native plants in their garden? Uh, So we're not selling seed. We sell plugs, and plugs for anyone who's not familiar, if you think of an egg carton and how an egg carton has 12 sort of divots or, or holes, one for each egg, Um, plugs are sold in a similar way rather than the carton you call it a flat and there's like a little pocket for for each plant and the pocket part is holding the root mass and then of course there's uh, foliage up above and so the the size of the flat the height to width or what am I trying to say length to to width ratio is the same uh, but you can have multiple sizes so you might have a flat that's 72 plugs, or you might have a 32. Now, the more plants you fit in, meaning 72, it means they're smaller because the outer dimensions of the flat are the same. So to give you a sense, a 72 count plug is maybe, I don't have it up in front of me, uh, roughly two inches deep, whereas a 50 count deep plug is um, closer to four inches deep. Um, And the 50 count are also uh, wider. Uh, So we sell a lot of plugs full flat, uh, and we also do sell quartz, um, and you know those are our single plants. So we find that, especially with a lot of sort of garden design books um, centered around naturalistic design that have been coming out in the last several years, often one of the buzzwords is matrix, uh, matrix planting, and the idea is to plant heavily also as a way of having um, weed suppression. And it can become uh, very expensive if you're doing that all with gallons. And so uh, plugs, which is a you know directly wholesale product has been something that we find that a lot of customers are really excited to get able to get their hands onto uh, because you're buying, as, as you put it, um, Kathy, kind of starter plants um, uh, so it's it's kind of like going to Costco. You're you're getting <laughs> you're getting volume mm-hmm. uh, right right from the beginning. And um, uh, 
you know, that root ball is uh, is heavy on roots and low on excess soil, uh, unlike, you know, buying something in, in a gallon or, or larger. Uh, and I must say the small size, not surprisingly, uh, becomes a lot more economical to ship, uh, which, you know, is an important part as well. Mm-hmm. You're not paying for all that excess soil and everything else. And I find when you get those plugs, you kind of have to tease the roots apart a bit before planting them. Um, so a little hint there, just don't stick it in exactly the way it came out of form that in the plug itself, kind of like a little torpedo shape, I would describe it. <laughs> <laughs> and then it does make it at that size much easier to work amongst tree roots in shade garden situations or maybe in a mature garden um, to add plants in. Yeah, very good points, Kathy. And I, I would add to that, that um, that. Uh, Conventional wisdom uh, that normally applies to looking at the roots of a plant when you buy doesn't necessarily plant, uh, apply to plugs. Uh, when when you have a nice plug, a mature plug, and you pull it out of the cell, it's going to look root, root bound, and that's really the target for the growers. Uh, you know, the uh, sometimes we get calls from people saying, "Hey, I got your plants," and you know they're totally root bound. It's like, yeah, that's what we aim for, and um, so it's a little bit counterintuitive. But uh, as Amanda was saying, there's very little growing medium for those roots to, uh, to thrive in. So, um, so they establish very quickly because, in part, they have no choice. You put them in the ground, they're not going to have that comfort zone of being surrounded by a gallon of uh, prime potting medium. Uh, you put them in the ground, the, the, the roots are going to venture immediately out. And they're going to establish a lot quicker. They're going to adapt to the native soil a lot quicker than transitioning from the, the comfort of growing medium uh, to, um, to the native soil in which, um, uh, in which you're planting them. Mm-hmm. And so they might get off to a little bit of a slower start, right? You know, it's not going to be like, boom, start to go into expansion phase because what they're doing is spreading out the roots. So the top growth isn't going to show as much um until maybe year two or year three i would say that that depends on the species mm-hmm. um, because there's some and uh you know talking about my garden as an experiment um uh i uh when i converted my front yard uh to um to i expanded uh, the areas available to me to to plant uh, uh my hordes of um of native plants I had some Aerogrostis um, spectabilis, um, uh, purple lovegrass, and I had some that had been grow- grown in quartz, and I also had some that one of our growers was experimenting with uh, 98 count plugs. So these are very were very very small plants. They were growing. Each cell was about an inch across by an inch across and uh, an inch deep, maybe uh, a little bit deeper, uh, deeper than that. Uh, that is a, uh, it's a size format, I might say, that we do not sell. That gets really small, and that is really uh, a size that's kept, uh, that's sold within the trade. So somebody might buy these cells and then pot them up into uh, either quartz uh, or sometimes actually a larger plug size. They mm-hmm. use them to, to grow out 32s or, or 50s. But I had access to these, and I was planting my front yard. And side by side, I put the quartz of, purple love grass, as well as these tiny um, 98 count plugs. Within one month, 
I could no longer tell the difference uh, which ones were those tiny one-inch size plants and which ones were the quartz. So it really depends on the species. There's some species that uh, that uh, are slow to establish. They mm-hmm. put, uh, during the first years, they, a lot of the energy goes into root development. Uh, and there are others where after uh, the first year of planting a plug, um, it will they will catch up within that first year to any of the larger sizes that you could possibly buy, whether it be a, a quart or a gallon. So it's really um, specific to spe- or species specific. Interesting to know. And so moving on to some of our sourcing questions, I've been hearing in some of our media that there is a seed shortage for straight native species. And uh, Claudio, is that true? And if that's the case, is it impacting you and your suppliers? Um, not really. So, so the seed shortage, shortages that you might hear about, uh, they're really uh, it really has more to do with um, with uh, restoration. Um, so, uh, and we're talking about the restoration of large areas, and there there are various reasons for doing that. Either uh, taking land out of cultivation and and trying to restore it to um, uh, to a more uh, natural habitat, and also sometimes um, uh, the result of uh, a catastrophic environmental desi- disaster. And I think the greatest examples of that uh, are Southern California, which has been devastated by years of forest fires uh, due to the the extended drought, droughts that have been going on for the past uh, few decades. So uh, agencies like the BLM, um, the Bureau of Land Management, have been um, charged or responsible with trying to, to restore those areas. And they use crazy amount of seeds. I mean, we're not talking, we're, we're way beyond the home gardener where... Uh, you're looking for um, a couple of ounces of seed or even beyond um, a commercial grower who, uh, who might be looking for pounds of seeds. I mean, uh, these agencies are looking for, for tons of seeds, uh, thousands of tons of seeds, uh, sometimes even within, within a species. And, and they are they are coming across short shortages, uh, and uh, and there was actually a, I think it was a four day conference uh, in Northern Virginia this uh, this spring, uh, the seed exchange or where uh, the main topic was uh, whether or how to get farmers to switch crops and to try to get farmers to actually grow seed crops for environmental restoration to be able to. Uh, uh, to supply uh, the demand. So in the areas that we, uh, the area of the trade that we work in, there, there's no significant uh, seed shortage other than the regular challenges of how to source uh, uh, native seed, uh, if, uh, you know, especially if you're a small nursery, you know, local nursery. It's, you know, it's very challenging. Uh, uh, you know, if you if you want to grow a hundred different species for from seed, you have to find a way to collect the seed from a hundred different species. You know, you, you have to be a botanist. You have to go out, or but you have to have botanist-like um, identification skills. You need to know where the 
the native populations are, you need to identify them correctly. You need to collect uh, the seeds. Um, that said, every once in a while, there are some shortages within commercial production. And a great example of that, uh, if uh, for the listeners out there uh, that might not be familiar with uh, Mount Cuba Center and the type of research that they do, mm-hmm. uh, they do a lot of trials about certain um, uh, genera, uh, typically. Um, and they just released uh, a long-awaited trial report that they did on sedges, more specifically uh, within the genus Carex. And the top performer of those trials has been uh, a sedge, uh, botanical name is Carex woodii. Uh, the common name, I believe, is just uh, simply woods sedge. And so everybody has been wanting to get their hands on this top performing sedge. And there is a seed shortage within, uh, within the industry, and uh, and we we cannot we cannot satisfy the the demand. Very few very few growers, uh, not just in the Mid Atlantic, but uh, in the Midwest as well, where the species is also native to, mm-hmm. uh, are having trouble uh, meeting meeting the supply. But um, everybody is out now trying to create propagation stock and collect seeds. So eventually the the industry will catch up but it's a slow process and and in the case of uh carex woody i believe that uh 2024 2025 at the latest the industry should be able to supply the demand for uh, for that particular species yeah it's good to hear we did have um sam from mount cuba on our podcast talking about that study and we did note that the woody eye is not going to be as commercially available, but the demand is pent up and there because that study was so definitive um, that woody eye was such a great performer. Um, so Amanda, is there any native plant shortage? So we were talking about the seeds themselves, but how about for you for sourcing specific plants for your customers? You know, it's kind of funny. Um, we get customer service emails or, or phone calls, um, particularly earlier in the season, let's say like in April, people will call and go, oh, are you already all, all the way sold out of milkweed? And I think, gosh, this is a, a, you know, a time for education. And I try to explain, you know, if we have something like that early in the season, it's been overwintered, right? So it was actually grown last year. And then at I mean, as you would know, Kathy, milkweed is really a warm season plant. Mm -hmm. So if you're starting it from seed that spring, it's not going to be ready in April. I mean, not a current crop of it. Um, So we do have a shortage, but I would argue it's not really a shortage. It's more like uh, a need for more education to explain that, you know, there's a difference between cool season plants, right, which have their active season of growth either in, in, in the cooler season. So we're talking spring and going into fall versus warm season, um, your milkweeds, your echinaceas, your, you know, black eyed Susans, this sort of thing, things that bloom, uh, in the summer or late summer, and they just emerge later. And so, um, it's something I wish that I could, we, we could better tell people that just because you're not seeing it now doesn't mean that that it's not available. It might mean it's not available yet. 
Yeah, and I'll say, you know, on a broader, uh, in a broader sense, uh, on the topic of, of shortages, um, uh, it's important to remember that um, that uh, that gro- that growing plants is not a hobby for uh, for plant producers, and um, and uh, even though. Um, some species will run short on a given season and will sell out. It's actually a good thing for, for our growers and producers to be in that situation. One, one thing that it's basically, it's a fine balance. It's a, it's, they're walking a fine line, satisfying demand, but at the same time, you don't want to have overproduction of plants that are then going to be destined to the compost pile because Mm -hmm. that costs them, that costs them money. So, um, so I think in, in many ways, uh, I think a lot of plant producers and native plant growers are always going to have a shortage of, uh, of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they obviously want to sell out is their goal. <laughs> they yeah. they want to have empty benches at the end of the season and yeah. not have to overwinter all those crops, which yeah. kind of brings up some of the ethical issues surrounding selling native plants, such as um, whether it's wild collected or... Um, how somebody has collected the seeds and what have you two run into? And I guess I'll start with Amanda. Oh gosh, there's, there's a lot of different ways of approaching that. I mean, of course we never ever would agree with wild digging, right? That's where you go out with your shovel and you're taking it from some kind of public or private land, uh, private meaning not your own. So uh, absolutely not. Um, From a seed collection standpoint, a lot of growers end up with their own uh, seed beds and essentially they're they're growing the stock themselves and then self-collecting from that. Um, I I think it's kind of interesting. (laughs) There's a lot of different ways to collect seeds, but one that I've always found sort of amusing is putting little mesh bags over over the seed heads so that you don't have to be there right on those like two days when they're finally ripe and about to pop. Mm -hmm. So it allows it to pop and it's already in the bag waiting for you to uh, come by and and collect. Um, Beyond that, uh, we do have growers that will, that will collect seed in the wild, but they are getting um, uh, sign off before doing that. You know, they're not just, tramping in, um, uh, but they do talk to land managers first. Um, you know, their permission, permission is the word I'm, I'm looking for. Like Amanda was saying, there, there are just a lot of ways to, to go about it and, and different nurseries and different growers go about it, uh, in, in different ways. And part of it, uh, uh, also depends on, uh, on the amount uh, of seed, uh, that, uh, that they are, that they need for, um, to satisfy their their own production, uh, mm-hmm. we work with a nursery out in Illinois and uh, Pizzo, uh, uh, spelled like pizza but with an O instead of a A. And if uh, if you go on their website, they have uh, incredible videos of some of their propagation beds, which uh, um, it, it's kind of like a mix between a beautiful prairie. And and a farm, you know, you just uh, there are just these rows and rows of native prairie species that uh, uh, that are growing there, which uh, from which they they harvest uh, 
the seeds. And, but that, you know, they require uh, large quantities of seeds and not all nurseries um, require such, uh, such huge amounts. And, uh, um, and, and also an, another thing to keep in mind is that um, when all is said and done, uh, the native plant market is still, uh, or trade, is, is still a very small one. And everybody knows each other. All the growers know each other. Uh, the nurseries know each other. And um, uh, it is kind of a, an aspect of gardening. Uh, it's kind of like gardeners. Uh, they help each other out. And there's a lot of trading that goes on. Uh, you know, somebody is out of seed or out of uh, any kind of uh, product. Uh, most growers and nurseries uh, will do anything they can to, to help somebody else out. So, so there's a fair amount of trading that goes, uh, that goes on uh, with, um, with, uh, with seeds and other plant material. Hmm. And um, another thing to keep in mind is that there are other ways of propagating uh, plants, even for commercial uh, production, uh, division. Uh, sometimes it's a very uh, effective way of propagating plants, depending on, uh, on the species, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, when uh which also ties into the question of genetic diversity uh, it depends on uh, how the divisions are made and uh, the propagation start uh, a lot of those divisions you end up uh, it's basically asexual propagation so you end up with uh, reduced uh, genetic uh, diversity but one way uh to think about this and I, i'd like to use this as uh, a, as an example uh, when somebody argued you know how bad is it or how good is it? Or uh, if any gardener uh, has ever traded um, ferns, Mm -hmm. if you have a Christmas fern and you divide it and you plant it in your garden or share it with with a neighbor or or a friend, you're essentially cloning an original plant and you're sharing plants. uh, They'll all be of the same genetic material. So, um, So it's something that, uh, even if we're not aware of, uh, we as gardeners often create clones and share clones, and and uh, the the commercial industry does does that as well for certain species. Hmm. And so, Amanda, are there any plants that you are having a demand for that you don't think you can meet that your customers are, you know, champing at the bit, so to speak? <laughs> oh man, uh, we could probably always use more uh, more species of milkweed because it is such a entry level interest right they the um, all the different sort of monarch organizations have done such a wonderful job of of pushing milkweed for monarchs or milkweed for butterflies and uh, uh, that demand is really strong I mean every grower we have grows it and we always sell out of it and um, so uh, that's definitely one that comes to mind. And then the other is uh, more of some of these grasses that can be used in matrix plantings where, you, where you've got drifts of some, say, flowering perennials and then interspersed with, with grasses. You know, one of the uh, grass growers that we work with, Hoffman in North Carolina, Gosh, they project their uh, availability out by a year. Like I, I can see when crops will be ready in 2024. Um, and and some of this stuff, they sell out, you know, months in advance. And so you you know, 
you know, a lot of those grasses, they're just, they're just really popular. Um, so, so we have them, right? Like, I guess the, the one positive side is that because we've got multiple growers, there's a bit more stability uh, in that supply because as one, one nursery's crop sells out, uh, we often have another one that might be becoming available. Uh, but I guess at the end of the day, uh, I'd be happy to have even more. <laughs> hmm. And how about you, Claudio? That's just uh, right, right on the money. And in terms of plants that I, I might uh, want to see more, uh, I think there's some hidden gems uh, that I would love to be able to put uh, into uh, commercial pr uh, production. But uh, uh, but the reason that we don't is that uh, actually um, some plants are actually very difficult to propagate, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. commercially, you know, and uh, and. You know, the, as much as uh, as much as uh, we've learned, uh, there, uh, there there's some there's some big uh, some big challenges, uh, and uh, and that's especially true. I I, uh, I think, and uh, anybody feel feel free to correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, some of the woodland species in particular are very challenging to propagate, mm -hmm. uh, and spring ephemerals, uh, and those include. Um, some of our native orchids, orchids that are absolutely beautiful and that uh, we would love to be able to, uh, to see more of, but uh, uh, there are just a number of challenges, including um, um, uh, the composition of uh, the soil. Some of these woodland species have very, very strict requirements in terms of, uh, of um, uh, um, how would you say, um, soil health or soil content, uh, including mycorrhiza, and they have in, uh, interactions, some of which are still are still unknown. So there's some there's some tough nuts to crack mm -hmm. out there. And, uh, you know, if I uh, could make a plug to uh, uh, to Barry Glick from Sunshine Farm and Garden, which uh, I don't know if you've had on your podcast, mm -hmm. but uh, I know you've worked uh, closely with him uh, with the with the magazine. Uh, and uh, and as we were starting out in our in our journey through native plants, uh, Barry has just the his knowledge about native plants uh, has been uh, just provided us a, a, uh, an invaluable education. And he is he has um, cracked the code to propagate certain species uh, that nobody else has been able to do. But uh, they're still he has certain production methods that work at a certain scale and because uh, a number of reasons there's some of those plants that still can't be um, uh, those protocols cannot be adapted into like a more conventional type of uh, plant production so so there are some challenges um, mm -hmm. um, yeah yeah, and I would say one of those would be definitely trilliums, which we did an episode not too long ago about that mm -hmm. and how long that can take to have a, a mature plant or even one that can flower, come to market, can be, you know, minimum of seven years. And that's why they cost what they cost. And that's why people are also tempted to go out to the woods and dig up um, illegally, you know, trilliums or some of our native orchids and that sort of thing. Yep. Yeah. And yeah, Barry is an invaluable source. And for those listeners not familiar with him, Barry Glick does the native 
um, going native column for Washington Gardener magazine. And he Mm -hmm. has a wonderful website and resource um, for Sunshine Farm. You can Google him and we'll put that uh, information in our show notes as well for him. So um, wrapping up, Amanda and Claudio, for listeners who want to contact you or learn more, um, how would they do so? Well, online at a browser near you, you can find us at izelplants.com. That's I, Z is in zebra, E is an elephant, L is in Larry, plants, plural, dot uh, com. Um, and from there, if you want, there's a, you know, a contact us link um, or a lot of the, we have a lot of information online in our blogs and resources uh, and charts that a lot of it is um, kind of self-serve, if you will. Um, the plant cultivation descriptions, um, you know, suggestions about garden design and maintenance and so on. Excellent. Well, thank you both. Thank you, Amanda. Thank you, Claudio. I think this has been really educational. I think people will take a fresh look at some of where they're sourcing and buying their plants. Well, thanks for having us, Kathy. Yes. Thank you for having us. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey, <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better and dating safer. They've changed so you don't have to download the new Bumble now. Baptisia plant profile. False indigo, Baptisia species, is a low-maintenance, deer-resistant plant that looks wonderful in a mixed perennial garden. It is also known as wild indigo. The common name stems from the fact that the Native Americans and early settlers used the plant to create colorful dyes. The genus Baptisia is a U.S. native that occurs naturally east of the Rocky Mountains. They are hardy from USDA zones 4 through 8. Baptisia is known as a long-lived plant with deep roots, so be sure you place it where you want to keep it for several decades. Those deep roots also make it a very drought-tolerant and tough plant. It prefers to be in full sun and is not picky about soil type as long as it is well-draining. It can take a few years for a young plant to fill out on top while it establishes those roots. But after year three in the garden, it should be about three feet wide and four to five feet high. It dies back to the ground in the winter and reemerges with tall flower spikes in the spring. By summer, the flowers have turned to seed pods, which are quite attractive themselves and make a satisfying rattle-like noise in the breeze. Baptisia is a terrific addition to a pollinator garden. It's the host plant for several caterpillars of moss and butterflies. In 2016, the Mount Cuba Center published the results of their Baptisia trials, and the top-rated plants include Screaming Yellow, Lemon Meringue, Ivory Towers, Blue Towers, Purple Smoke, and Cherry's Jubilee. Baptisia, you can grow that.
What's new in the garden this week? Well, I cut a couple bouquets of my bearded iris and they smell heavenly. Over at the community garden plot, we picked our first strawberry and it was delicious. In the local gardening world, some upcoming events you might want to participate in include the Silver Spring Garden Club meeting on Monday, May 15th at 7.30 p.m. I will be speaking at that on great ground covers and signing and selling my book. And that takes place at Brookside Gardens. And you can find out more about that at silverspringgardenclub.com. And later on, That same week, May 19th, the Friday at 12 noon Eastern Time, I will be uh, hosting a YouTube Live discussion with Graham Gardner, author of Tiny and Wild, and we will be discussing the No Mow May movement and how both of our books can offer more sustainable lawn alternatives. You can join us live at youtube.com, Washington Gardener Magazine, at that time. And if you cannot, the session will be recorded and posted to the YouTube channel later for you to view. But if you attend live, you are entered into a drawing to win a copy of both of our books. So we hope to see you there. An in-person plant sale you might want to attend if you're in the D.C. area Uh, is the Bel Air Garden Mart. That's on Friday, May 19th as well. And that is from 8.30 a.m. to 1.30 p.m. rain or shine. The location is the Bel Air Armory at 37 North Main Street. There's free admission. Four local garden clubs will be selling plants and there is a food truck uh, offering uh, great baked goods. Also perennials, annuals, and native plants from those garden clubs. A hybrid event is taking place that same day, Friday, May 19th, and that is taking place in person at the Connie Morella Library and via Zoom. And this is from Montgomery County Libraries, a contemporary conversation with Karen Washington and Jabari S. Walker on urban farming, sustainability, and the environment. Um, So you won't want to miss that, and you can participate in the live stream through Montgomery County Library website. So, this week's episode marks two big milestones for Garden DC. One is our 150th episode, so we are so happy to have reached that. And we also reached 100,000 downloads or plays. So, thank you to all who have supported the podcast, to all of our guests, to all of our interns who've helped work on it. Uh, You have made it a great success, and we want to thank you so much for that. Happy gardening. In the new book, The Urban Garden by Kathy Jensen Terry Spade, you'll find dozens of inspiring and creative ways to grow flowers, shrubs, vegetables, herbs, and other plants in small spaces and with a limited budget. Whether you want to grow on a balcony, rooftop, front stoop, or a tiny urban patio, turn your growing dreams into reality and build a gorgeous and unique garden that showcases your personal style while still being functional and productive. With the ingenious ideas and resourceful tactics found here, you'll be maximizing yields and beauty from every square inch of your space while also making a lush outdoor living area you'll crave spending time in. Whether you're growing edible plants or beautiful flowers, the 101 amazing growing ideas found in the urban garden will turn your tiny urban yard into a treasure trove of green you'll be proud to share with family and friends. Buy your copy today at your local retail bookseller or order it online now at amazon.com or bookshop.org. 
Get low-maintenance alternatives to lawns with the new book, Ground Cover Revolution, by Kathy Jentz. Reducing the lawn is among the biggest trends in home ownership, with an endless stream of homeowners looking for an eco-friendly alternative to a traditional, everyday grass lawn. In the last few years alone, over 23 million American adults converted part of the lawn to a natural landscape, and now are looking to do even more. The biggest challenge to adopting this new ideal of the perfect lawn is knowing how and when to replace your turf and which plants are the best ones for the job. Ground Cover Revolution is here with all the answers you need. Included are 40 in-depth profiles of plants that are perfect choices for replacing a grass lawn. There are options for sun, for shade, for dry and wet sites, and for various climates around the globe. There are choices that bloom, options that are evergreen, and selections that are deer resistant. Author Kathy Jens has also included an incredibly useful chart that gives you all the details on each of the 40 choices for quick reference and to make your ground cover selection process even easier. Whether you want to replace the entire lawn or just reduce the amount of land dedicated to turf, Ground Cover Revolution will help you usher in a new and improved idea of what a beautiful lawn should be. Available at bookstores now and also at Quarto.com, where you can get 30% off using discount code GARDENING30. This is the last word on food forest gardening by Angela Ferraro Fanning, founder of Axon Root Homestead and author of The Sustainable Homestead. Many of us are familiar with woodland landscapes and the dense brush and vegetation that grows in a small space. Upon looking closely, you will find there are multiple layers in which the plants thrive. There's the overstory, midstory, and understory. There are vines, shrubs, ground covers, mulches, and even mushrooms. This abundance is nature's design for maximizing space, introducing a myriad of root depths and deposits into the soil and absorbing more carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. We can actually mimic this growth pattern in our own gardens to increase our yields, improve crop health, and sequester carbon. This form of gardening is called food forest gardening, and it has actually existed in cultures around the world for centuries. A food forest garden is a network of different plants which assist one another in supplying nutrients, fixing nitrogen, repelling insects, and even some forms of disease, and in attracting pollinators. Over time, the forest requires less hands-on management and boasts more food. While some items can be grown as annuals and bear a harvest immediately, other long-term crops like fruiting trees and shrubs may take years to offer a proper yield. But once perennials are planted, they come back year after year with bigger and more prolific harvests. When designing a food forest, it's ideal to start by considering overstory plants. Their mature height, canopy width, shade density, and root structure will determine appropriate companion plants. Such members of this family in a food forest garden could include oak, chestnut, maple, or walnut. These trees provide a yield with their edible nuts, such as acorns, or their tappable sap, such as from maples. Their canopies provide shade and if planted near structures, cooling power and shelter for animals from the sun's rays. They absorb massive amounts of carbon dioxide, provide firewood, lumber, and shelter for wildlife. Legume family trees such as the moringa fix nitrogen into the soil, assisting other plants that grow nearby. They also offer an abundance of medicinal properties. Next is the midstory layer, which is typically comprised of standard and semi-dwarf-sized fruit and nut trees. These trees perform many of the same tasks as the previous group, but they will present harvestable fruit. A well-cared-for apple tree with no disease or pest pressure, nor external damage, for example, can produce 8 to 10 bushels of apples per year. Smaller fruit varieties, such as a semi-dwarf or a dwarf, can bear up to 1,260 apples per season, variety depending, of course. Purchasing the largest tree you can afford to plant is wise, as it can take 10 years for a tree to produce a full harvest. The next layer is going to be the understory. 
These shrubs and plants grow in and around the main trunks of the fruiting and overstory trees. For sun-loving, lower-growing shrubs and plants, caneberries like blueberries or blackberries can be installed on the outer drip line of the mature tree canopy. Partially shade-tolerant plantings such as autumn or Russian olive, kale, currants, gooseberries, and elderberries, for example, can be situated closer to the trunk. Culinary and medicinal herbs and perennial flowers can be interplanted on the ground level to attract beneficial insects, repel pests, and even some forms of disease, pull nutrients upward from deep within the soil layers for other plants to feed from, fix nitrogen, and act as natural chop-and-drop mulching plants. Ground-covering plants, which fill spaces between taller flora on the food forest floor, function as weed suppressors. Lastly, Vining crops such as beans, peas, gourds, akebia vine, and hardy kiwi, for example, can be planted at the base of the food forest trees, which will act as a natural trellising system. Vining fruit can be harvested at the same time as the orchard tree fruit if varieties are well-researched and their timing is compatible. A successful food forest garden will be a product of combining plants that are best suited to your own growing zone, the amount of sunlight you receive, your water availability, your soil type, and your soil nutrients. But regardless of the members of your food forest, carbon absorption, improved soil, and abundance are sure to follow. If you do your research, plan accordingly, and take care of your forest canopies, they'll be sure to provide for you in return for years to come. This was the last word on food forest gardening by Angela Ferraro Fanning, founder of Axon Root Homestead and author of The Sustainable Homestead. Thank you for listening to Garden DC. You can become a listener supporter for as little as 99 cents a month by going to anchor.fm slash garden DC slash support. Another way to support this podcast is to subscribe to our monthly digital publication, Washington Gardener Magazine. To do so, go to washingtongardener.com. Thank you. You can find Washington Gardener online at WashingtonGardener.com, on Twitter at WDC Gardener, on Instagram at WDC Gardener, and on Facebook.com at Washington Gardener Magazine.